Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we take the curated link section of damninteresting.com and turn it into a verbal cornucopia for your entertainment. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Our first link comes from Live Science by Tara Santora. And this is called, What Did People Use Before Toilet Paper Was Invented? Do we want to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to find out because oh, this is what I've chosen to kick our podcast off with. But you may be delighted to know that Susan Morrison, who is a medieval literature professor at Texas State University, She's authored a book called Excrement in the Middle Ages, Sacred <laughs> Filth, and Chaucer's Fico Poetics, uh, published in 2008, uh, a recent tome. Right at the height of the financial crash. Right. <laughs> you know, you got to occupy your time somehow, and lo and behold, this, this thing still has legs, right? <laughs> but she goes into sort of the challenge that, you know, most of the material we don't have because it's organic and just disappeared. So the way that we've been able to recover some of the same Examples, including some with traces of feces, as well as depictions of toilet paper's precursors in art and literature. You know, of course, there have always been things committed to pottery or frescoes in ancient times that depict all manner of human existence. And frankly, without those, we would not have a lot of information because it can be really difficult to excavate and scavenge and figure out exactly what was being done because these are mostly organic materials. But people have used everything from their own hands to corn cobs or even snow to clean up after bowel movements. And this has happened all throughout history. One of the oldest materials on record for this purpose is the hygiene stick, which dates back to China over 2,000 years ago, according to a 2016 study. These were also referred to as bamboo slips, were basically just wooden or bamboo sticks wrapped in cloth. During the Greco-Roman period, they cleaned their derrieres with another stick called a tersorium which had a sponge at one end, and it was left in public bathrooms for communal use. Mm. I wish that facial expressions made sounds because my <laughs> face right now. <laughs> now. That being said, some people argue that the tesorium may not have been used to clean people's behinds, but rather the bathrooms they defecated in. And they did have a cleaning process for this. You would clean a tesorium by dumping it in a bucket of salt or vinegar water, or by dipping it in running water that flowed beneath the toilet seat. So, mm. you know, keeping sanitary has been a thing that we have been aware of for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. The Greeks and Romans also used these ceramic pieces that were rounded in the shape of an oval or a circle called pesoi. Archaeologists have been able to find these relics with traces of feces on them, as well as an ancient wine cup that features a man wiping his bum with pesoi. So that's where the art has brought this thing to life so we could understand how it was being used. That's so odd. Like, imagine <laughs> if your coffee mug just had a guy sitting on a toilet wiping his butt. Like, that's just such an odd thing to put on your art. You know, you say that, but toilet humor has persisted yeah. for a really, really long time. Like, the fart joke is old and mm -hmm. still new. I mean, yeah. you do a fart or a poop joke around a six-year-old, there's something fundamentally 
funny about this kind of thing. Sure. So it may have been like a novelty item that happened to persist. <laughs> like, like the medieval version of Spencer's. Like that's where you exactly. went to get your, your 100%. medieval gift. <laughs> you make me think of those naughty Calvin stickers, you know? Mm, from yes, Calvin exactly. Hobbs. That's yeah. true. We have a long and storied history of this. But yeah. I will say that in the case of these ceramic discs, the material is not really great because it causes skin irritation, external <laughs> hemorrhoids. The Greeks also had another use for these ceramic pieces. They would inscribe the name of their enemies when voting to ostracize them. And so after the vote, they <laughs> may have wiped their feces on their enemies' names. You know, a little bit of Ooh, purging yeah. some of that vitriol, if you yeah. will. In Japan, in the 8th century AD, people used another type of wooden stick called a chugi to clean both the outside and inside of the anus, literally putting a stick up their butts. (laughs) (laughs) There have also been a lot of other materials that ancient history has shown us, like water, leaves, grass, stones, animal furs, seashells. In the Middle Ages, people also used moss, sedge, hay, straw, and even pieces of tapestry. Okay. I'm assuming these were like (laughs) scrap pieces, not like there's a tapestry on the wall and I'm just going to conveniently reach out. When you got to go. Or, you know, just in the same way that you inscribe the name of your enemies on these ceramic discs, maybe it was a tapestry that depicted something politically or had a feature of a king you didn't particularly like. That's Mm -hmm. that's one way to kind of demonstrate your dissatisfaction with uh, elected (laughs) officials. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from MessyNessieChic.com, and it is titled The Mad 1920s Fad of Pole Sitting. Wait, wasn't that like a Harvey Danger song yeah. back in the 90s? Yeah, Flagpole Sitter. Not, not yeah. Sitter, Sitter. That oh, was- <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was a great song. I don't know if that's what this is referencing, but Pole Sitting, which was a fad that actually became all the rage in the 1920s, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It involved sitting atop a pole, usually a flagpole, for as long as possible. All right. And some folks made careers out of it, pole sitting for <laughs> hundreds of days at a time to Why? new records. Who, who's paying them? <sighs> That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> it's a very niche job, I guess. I but it is another example of the long tradition of sticks and butts, as my first yes. article That's alluded true. to. Exactly. <laughs> and there's no way I could have planned this so well. So, But we can't talk about pole sitting without talking about Alvin Shipwreck Kelly, who is the original influencer for the Roaring Twenties craze. <laughs> He was dubiously claiming himself to have been a survivor of the Titanic and called himself the luckiest fool in the world. Hmm. And he was first dared by a friend in 1924 to sit on a flagpole and succeeded in staying up there for 13 hours and 13 minutes. And this was a time without television, so this stunt attracted considerable attention, which actually prompted him to then travel around America charging admissions for the spectacle and earning endorsements for his publicity stunts. Oh, okay. So when we're talking about sitting on a flagpole, this isn't like grasping it like a little monkey. This is literally just balancing on your rear atop what I'm hoping is some kind of rounded end of a very tall pole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this article has a ton of pictures in it as well, which are all very interesting and entertaining. So I really recommend after listening to this, like, go look at the article because it's fascinating. 
a lot of these poles are kind of like big rounded telephone pole style you know they're not exactly easy to sit on but they have a flattened top and a fairly wide base right there's a surface area involved exactly yeah and some of these poles even have like little chair like configurations on them and stuff which i assume was very important and some of them are just sticks poking out of the water so, you know, it varies. <laughs> right. It's a wide and uh, storied tradition, it seems. But <laughs> So Alvin Shipwreck Kelly helped inaugurate new hotels and shops. He attracted <laughs> crowds for movie premieres and amusement parks and once sat on a pole for 22 days at Madison Square Gardens during a dance marathon, which was apparently another endurance fad, uh- until the last dancers dropped. I mean, so, speaking of how you're going to wipe your bottom when you go to the bathroom, like, I mean, I'm assuming it's just dropping from the top, but then what do you do? I mean, I, the endurance of this it, is what I'm not understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And what it says is that his preferred form of nourishment was liquids, a lot of coffee, as well as cigarettes, <laughs> which were hoisted up the pole by assistants using rope and pails. Mm. And to use the bathroom, he turned away from the crowd and used a small tube that ran to the ground into a hole. Mm. So actually pretty Pretty kind of tidy. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> Could be worse, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> so this guy actually caused pole sitting fever to spread across the country, <laughs> prompting amateur copycats and professional pole sitters alike to seek out fame and fortune. And so at the literal height of his career in 1930, <laughs> nice. he set a world record by sitting atop a 225 foot tall flagpole in Atlantic City for 49 days and one hour. Wow. And to keep himself from falling asleep, he would tie his ankles to the pole and was frequently pictured in the press hundreds of feet in the air, brushing his teeth and shaving his face. Yikes. I mean, he had to fall asleep. He was just tying himself so he wouldn't fall off. Like he couldn't I presume. Have, yeah, there's no way he stayed awake for 49 days. That's insane. Yeah, that would be impossible. Like, I think around <laughs> 13 days you die. Yeah. And like at five, there's hallucinations mm-hmm. and all that. But so Alvin Kelly did have numerous rivals, uh, most notably Richard <laughs> Dixie Blandy, who was struck by lightning several times during his career and famously drank 92 bottles of whiskey and smoking three packs of cigarettes a day during a 125-day sitting, 200 feet off the ground. Dude, and I guess bring that's a the... book. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> the novelty of pole sitting mostly died out with the onset of the Great Depression, despite <laughs> numerous attempts of a revival and an enduring audience over in the Netherlands, where sitting on a pole for hours on end is known as palsitin, and also became a highly competitive sport there <laughs> in the 1970s. Nice. We're due for a comeback, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately for Alvin Shipwreck Kelly, his life did take a sad turn penniless and all but forgotten at his last flagpole sitting appearance in 1952 he suffered two heart attacks which forced him to come down early and he was hit by a car less than a week later wow and then for a time his body was unclaimed at the morgue as well so kind of a rough ending for him i mean it's lonely if you're spending all your time at the top of a pole you don't have time to make friends and have a family i mean yeah or you know get a checkup right (laughs) In 1984, H. David Werder sat on a pole for 439 days. Gosh. Yeah. yeah. At, at some point, it just becomes incomprehensible. I mean, you're spending over a year on a pole, not talking to anybody. I mean, not drinking a liquid diet the entire time, apparently. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure you're talking to people. Like, doing something for this kind of extended period basically requires a support system and network of people right. literally on the ground to make sure you're not dying. Mm-hmm. Just give them a cut of the fees, that's all. (laughs) 
<laughs> so the reason that H. David Werder was sitting on a poll for 439 days was to protest against the price of gasoline. The article does not describe whether or not this had any effect, but you know, way to stand by your principles, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, you so, gotta respect it. Or absolutely. sit by your principles, as right. the case might be. Yes. <laughs> but perhaps the title of true champion pole sitters belongs to the ancient pillar dwellers of yore. As it happens, pole sitting dates all the way back to the early days of the Byzantine Empire, when the discipline of stylitism or column sitting could not only earn you public admiration, but sainthood. Wow. Wow. Yeah, the first and most well-known stylite was Simeon Stylites the Elder, a monk who climbed a pillar in Syria in the year 423 and stayed there for 37 years until his death. (laughs) Wow. At that point, it's a meditation. I mean, you're a monk who's gone into seclusion and you're just going to stay up there. Absolutely. And so the idea was to find peace in prayerful concentration. But even back then, news of a guy living on top of a 50-foot column spread really fast Mm. and attracted even more pilgrims seeking his blessings and advice. He was also visited by emperors and bishops, and Genevieve, the patron saint of Paris, is said to have climbed a ladder to speak with him at a distance. Hmm. And his pillar remained intact near Aleppo for centuries after his death until recently in 2016, when the site unfortunately took a hit from a missile, reportedly from a Russian jet, leaving nothing behind but rubble. Wow. And Simeon had numerous disciples and imitators in the region as well, one of whom was St. Olypius, who stood upright on a pillar for 53 years what? and lay on his side for the remaining 14 years of his life. Oh. And oh. a biblical settlement in Jordan has a preserved tower that has been interpreted as a stylite column as well. So while the discipline has become virtually extinct in Christian asceticism over in modern day Georgia, there's actually an Orthodox monk by the name of Maxime Kavtaradze, sorry, having a hard time with that, (laughs) who has lived on top of Kachki Pillar for 20 years and only comes down twice a week. So this is actually happening right now. Wow. I mean, how did the long timers not expire from exposure alone? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you got to do this in a nice part of the world where the weather is pretty reasonable. I mean, I'm really imagining like a nice area of Spain that's super moderate all the time, you know. <laughs> but you're like still going to get rain. Like that, you're still but... going to get a lot of sun in the summer. Like, mm-hmm. I, I just, yeah. I guess hats off to them. And maybe that's why they got the attention and money and accolades they did when that was valued. Well, I... maybe that was the thing. Maybe it was not hats off. They had really big hats on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, well, this one is a little long, but it is worth it. This comes from the New York Times. It's called Inside eBay's Cockroach Cult, The Ghastly Story of a Stalking Scandal. Ugh. So it's a story of corporate espionage taken to an absurd degree. There were two executives and seven employees implicated. But the only one who talked to the New York Times is the youngest employee, Veronica Zay, who was 25 at the time. The department in question at eBay headquarters is called Global Security and Resiliency. They were created to track so-called persons of interest who might pose a threat to the company. So already, like, it's kind of a paranoid-sounding department. On the other hand, a woman did shoot three people at YouTube for some sort of imagined grudge in April of 2018. So, you know, it's kind of maybe understandable. That was sort of Mm -hmm. the general attitude in the department was we're here to save lives. Like it was very intense and it seemed to attract a certain type of personality. So like the head of the department was named James Baugh. 
He claimed that he used to be in the CIA and or sometimes he said his wife was currently in the CIA. Like it was a little questionable, but he would stage yeah. drills for the employees. Like he would suddenly text everyone that there was an active shooter on the second floor. Oh, that's delightful. Yeah. Like he was a little bit of a horrible, horrible boss. <laughs> they said one time he found a knife in the communal barbecue area and made this big deal about how a deranged person could take this and use it to hurt someone, which he demonstrated by stabbing an office chair and then leaving oh. the knife in the chair for months as a reminder to everybody. Okay, so, that's not the person you have in charge. Right. Yeah, this guy already was was showing problems, but it got it gets way worse, trust me. Oh my God. <laughs> Ball loved to demonstrate his philosophy through film clips. He would routinely call everyone into the conference room and show, for example, the scene from American Gangster where Denzel Washington kind of calmly executes a man to make a point. Or what? even the bit from Meet the Fockers about a retired CIA agent's, quote, circle of trust. Like, that was a phrase he would use all the time. And people were like, are you aware that that's a comedy? Like, it's not serious. <laughs> oh my and uh, Miss Zay said that on at least five separate occasions, they were shown a clip from the TV show Billions where an executive sneers to a subordinate, you don't try to be loyal, you just are. <laughs> yeah. Wow. They said once a guard pulled all of the analysts' personal possessions out of their lockers and dumped them in trash bags to teach them that they could not expect privacy at work. This was followed by a clip about locker discipline from the Vietnam film Full Metal Jacket. What? Over 18 months, global security and resiliency fired and replaced at least a dozen analysts. Everyone was afraid for their job all the time. It was just a really intense working environment. Hmm. So then they had many, quote, persons of interest on their list. But in 2019, one pair in particular started to stick out. It was a married couple from Massachusetts named David and Ina Steiner. And they ran this very small, kind of inconsequential blog called E-Commerce Bytes, which was a trade publication for a variety of online retailers, including eBay and Etsy and Amazon, et cetera. It really wasn't meant to just be trashing eBay all the time. I mean, basically, their only sin was that sometimes their articles weren't entirely favorable to eBay. But the new CEO targeted them and was like, I want these guys out. I hate them. For example, in April of 2019, Ina wrote about the new CEO's salary of $18 million, mildly suggesting that it might be coming at the expense of payments to small sellers. And right after that came out, the chief communications officer texted to the CEO, we are going to crush this lady. So <laughs> they picked her out wow. real fast. They very clearly had a problem with her. And the fact that they have these guys' texts kind of tells you there were subpoenas involved and <laughs> it got dirty. So and like even when she wrote nice things like how the new CEO had promised greater protection from fraudulent buyers, the chief communications officer who was named Wenig wrote, quote, shockingly reasonable to the CEO named Weimer, who replied, I couldn't care less what she says. She <gasps> is a biased troll who needs to get burned down. Oh, my yeah. goodness. And he signed off with whatever it takes. <gasps> so, like, I don't know where this obsession came from, but it was multiple people because there was the CEO, there was the communications officer, there was the head of global security. And that, that guy was the one showing the film clips. His head was already filled with weird movie scenes and fantasies of working for the mm -hmm. CIA. So he devised a white knight strategy, which was they were going to harass the Steiners from a fake account designed to look like a disgruntled seller and then let eBay swoop in and save them. Right. So now they would have a more favorable mm. view of eBay, I suppose, which is just a really backwards and weird way to look at it. Like you're somehow going to convince them, oh, now I'll write nice articles about eBay for the rest of our lives. 
So they, dodgy. Yeah. So they started small, which is to say they mailed a pig mask covered in blood to the Steiners. Oh. And then tweeted, do I have your attention now from the fake harasser? What the? Okay. Wow. Yeah, this oh, yeah. mob mentality thing. It, yeah. I mean, culture kind of trickles down from the top. So it's not a surprise <laughs> that like some of the foot soldiers within the company would do this. But that is just, I mean, when you say cinematic, that almost does this a service it does not deserve. Right. It's not good enough to be cinematic. <laughs> so the Steiners subsequently received packages containing a funeral wreath and a book called Grief Diaries, Surviving the Loss of a Spouse. They received fly larvae. They received a box of live cockroaches. Subscriptions to porn magazines in the husband's name were sent to neighbors' houses. They got <gasps> pizzas at 4 a.m. Somebody posted Craigslist ads announcing swingers parties at the Steiner's home address. Meanwhile, Baugh and two of his analysts flew to Massachusetts to try to put a GPS tracker on the Steiner's car. Like it, what? <laughs> it went way, way overboard, especially if you go look at this newsletter. Like, they're nobody. I mean, you know, good for them for living their dream and writing a newsletter, but oh my God. Right. And the Steiners, they had no idea who was doing this. They hadn't even connected it to the fact that they write this little newsletter about a variety of retailers. So right. ultimately, the wow. harassment, they called the police, who quickly traced the rental car to Veronica Zay and the gift card that was used to purchase the pizzas to a place that was right next to eBay's headquarters. So oh, immediately, they're like, okay, we've got an instant lead on this. We know where we're going. eBay's lawyers were contacted. They started questioning the global security department going like, hey, guys, you know, what's going on? <laughs> Can you imagine how pissed off those lawyers <laughs> oh, must yeah, have been? Oh, yeah, especially corporate uh, lawyers. Like, uh, yeah, they were not happy. And then, of course, global security engaged in a massive cover-up. They sent these performative emails to each other where they acted like, oh, my gosh, we've just discovered this harassing Twitter user. They also discussed, apparently, enlisting a, quote, friendly cop in the Bay Area to give falsified security footage to the Massachusetts PD, which would give alibis oh to the global security team that had gone to Boston. Like, Oh, my it, God. These people had absolutely gone off the rails. And then as soon as the actual police interrogation started, everyone caved. They all <laughs> admitted, like, <laughs> every single person was like, oh, yeah, man, we all did this and it was crazy. And we don't know why we did it. Like, our bosses told us to and we were afraid for our jobs and we just kind of went along. And then as soon as, you know, the House of Cards starts crumbling, Baugh texted the two executives who had been egging him on saying if there's any way to get some top cover, that would be great. They did not respond. No kidding. Yeah. Everyone was fired, which is nice. The executives did get fired after their texts came out. But they both claimed that they were speaking off the cuff. They never actually instructed the team to do anything illegal. And it sort of follows up on all these people who are now facing up to five years per count, which is quite, <laughs> they did a lot of things to these poor people. Yeah. And, uh, wow. you know, they're all having a hard time getting jobs again. They said when the case became public, which was like a year after it actually happened, Veronica Zay was already working at a new job. So when it became public, she got fired from that job. Meanwhile, <laughs> the two executives, they already have new jobs. Wenig sits on the board of GM whose CEO uh, uh, stated that the cyberstalking scandal was regrettable, but didn't involve any GM business. So they're not. Unreal. Yeah. I mean, also completely predictable when you think about how mm -hmm. sociopaths are rewarded. I am furious right now. <laughs> well, yeah. just think, think, think about the pig mask. <laughs> that's, that's not even funny. That's like I know, a yeah. scene out of The Godfather. Maybe they couldn't find a horse mask, so they went up with a pig mask. <laughs> like, all of this, it, like, they took all of these strategies from, 
fictionalize mob and criminal activity. Right. And said to themselves, this is the way to go. Oh, my gosh. Well, and then you're not going to like this part either. Weimer is now the CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Silicon Valley. And the PR notice about his hiring said that he would do for these disadvantaged children whatever it takes. (laughs) It just, yeah, I mean, the the lack of self-awareness is crazy. Well, it's not just the self-awareness. It's the accountability Mm -hmm. from what you would hope to be other decent people in positions of leadership. (laughs) I'm just, oh, this country. That's so deranged. (laughs) Well, on that note. Sorry, I'm still processing. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Okay, well, maybe this will give us a little bit of closure since I've got it on the brain. Uh, This is a nice long form piece from Elemental on Medium.com by Samuel Ashworth. It's about the slow, troubling death of the autopsy. Huh. Mm. It's a really beautiful piece. I kind of wish they didn't have pictures included, but they're Mm -hmm. very tastefully done and you can kind of scroll. They've even got a content warning at the top of it. But this really kind of goes into our preconceived biases around autopsy and the people who do autopsies and how it's been in decline over a pretty long time in a way that doesn't make sense, especially now that we're in COVID and we have a new disease that's killing people that we don't fully understand. Mm-hmm. So basically, in the late 1960s, the autopsy rate in U.S. hospitals was nearly 60%, which is pretty healthy, right? Mm-hmm. But today, that number is 4.3%. And this decline is not limited to the United States. In the UK, the rate is 0.69%. And so, you know, it's easy to assume that this plunge has to do with improvements in medical technology, that now that we've got MRIs and PET scans and laparoscopy, there's nothing that doctors can't see. But this is completely untrue, in part because of what happens with death certification. So, While errors on birth certificates are rare, death certificates have tons of errors. And in part, it's because a lot of medical schools don't focus on how to handle death paperwork. Hmm. This one doctor, she went to Georgetown. They never trained her on the death packet. So she felt really unprepared and she asked for help. So a senior resident said, just write down arrhythmia, which is, you know, just the heart stopped. Right. And for pathologists, when you write arrhythmia or cardiac arrest, This is so useless because we all die of cardiac arrest. Your heart stops. It means nothing. And so as a result, a huge percentage of death certificates, as much as 85% in some studies, have an error in the cause of death section. And about half have multiple errors. But we still use these death certificates as a major source of data. Hospitals use them to compile mortality and morbidity numbers. They send them to the National Center of Health Statistics and then other agencies that then allocate funding and resources. And so, you know, the death certification thing is definitely an issue, but autopsies are hugely important. I mean, they detect antemortem diagnostic errors at a frequent and enduringly consistent rate. Well, that's a good reason for them to not want to do them. That makes sense. (laughs) Sure. Uh, Yeah. I mean, but that does a disservice to the medical profession entirely. Sure. I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm just saying I understand why they're like, no, please don't find out how I screwed up. Like, let's not (laughs) investigate that. (laughs) Exactly. But what that does is it basically gives doctors, you know, no accountability or even data to furnish. Were you correct? Did you miss something? Because, you know, unfortunately, 
ultimately, mistakes are a really good way of learning. Death obviously has a really high cost of it, but it can furnish information not just to the doctor who is associated to that patient, but all doctors who may encounter situations like these. Hey, this is another thing you might think about. Mm -hmm. The cause of the decline in autopsies, the author notes with a nice pun, they're not dead yet, are thorny and complicated because the most frequently cited problem is financial. So Mm -hmm. in 1971, the Joint Committee for Accreditation of Health Organizations elected to eliminate a requirement that hospitals perform autopsies on 20% of deaths to maintain their accreditation, which can affect their ability to participate in Medicaid and Medicare. But this requirement was in place for only six years, and there were problems with its implementation. Then, in 1986, Medicare decided autopsies were not part of patient care and thus could not be funded by the government, so the rate plunged nationwide as Mm. hospitals eliminated their autopsy suites and stopped covering the cost for families. So today, a lot of private hospitals have given up their autopsy suites, and the vast majority are now done in teaching hospitals with pathology resident programs. And so the result is whether or not you can afford an autopsy depends in part on where you die. If you die in a big teaching hospital, the service might be offered to you free of charge, as long as the doctor is aware of that policy, which they might not be. Mm. Otherwise, you might be referred to a private practice, which can run more than $10,000, depending on the breadth of examination, and it's not covered by insurance. Wow. Yeah, of course I mean, not. So, especially once they get rid of the autopsy theaters in the hospitals, now you've got to ship the mm-hmm. body somewhere else to make it happen. I mean, yeah, I can see yeah. why. It and pay happen. out of pocket for it. Yeah. yeah. And this has, you know, the funding problem creates another more intractable problem, which is a loss of expertise. To be board certified as an autopsy professional, pathologists must complete 50 autopsies. It used to be 100, but the board was forced to reduce it because they were not able to hit those numbers. Right, it's just not and enough. So, exactly. And so you're getting inexperienced people, but autopsy dissection is not a blunt or brutal. It's basically full body surgery, but without any of the technology that facilitates surgery on the living. So you have to be really dang good at this. And Mm. there was a pathologist that the author interviewed and he said, I recently saw a battlefield autopsy kit from the Civil War and I thought I could get the job done with that. (laughs) Troublingly, the average age for forensic pathologists is 52. Young doctors are not going into the field and Mm -hmm. it's not really hard to see why. It's one of the least remunerative, least glamorous fields in medicine. And working with the dead is also psychologically difficult. Burnout rates are super high. You know, there's no real way to numb yourself when you Mm -hmm. have to dissect a child, for example. Mm -hmm. But even if all of these things were suddenly solved, you know, if Medicare started covering autopsies, if hospitals figured out this was a huge way to do quality control, if overnight it became really sexy, there's another bottleneck. Autopsies require the family's consent, and they frankly freak people out, right? We've had all of these, you know, NCIS and different characterizations of people who work in the morgue as being unable to relate to people, or they're just, you know, super goth, or something is wrong with them. They have to be deranged in order to get this kind of work. And so there's a huge stigma against autopsies and the people who do them. I have to admit, leading up to this, I hadn't even thought about autopsies on people where there wasn't a crime suspected. Like, to me, that's like the Mm -hmm. only time you ever do them. But then I now realize, obviously, they could be useful in other scenarios for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it is a current issue with COVID testing because a lot of the time they won't do an autopsy on somebody that has died of COVID and they just mark it a general respiratory failure in a lot of cases. That's exactly right. And the lack of autopsies totally contributes to the confusion around this, right? So there's an example of a father and son who had COVID, went to Chicago. The son died, but the father didn't. 
And it's frustrating because it's the same virus, but it acts completely different in everybody. What Mm -hmm. works for one patient might not work for the next. And so not having the information that can give you the gold standard for diagnosis, and sometimes it's the only way of seeing the damage that a disease does to a body. Right. Mm -hmm. So keep it in mind, you might be doing a lot of service to the medical community, to people who may have issues like you do. Well, you guys- highly recommend the read. You guys have my permission right now. If I die, cut me up, man. Do it. I'm I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm Well, you may want to put that in, in legal documents because I'm not sure the rest of your family may necessarily- agree or look to us as the authority, the key is to get it down in writing. No, 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 no. Podcasts are totally legally (laughs) viable. Yeah. Yeah, Angie. We have power of attorney now. That's how this works. (laughs) Next link. Next link. Okay, so I'm going to take us into outer space for this one uh, with a article from APnews.com titled, New measurements show moon has hazardous radiation levels. Oh, good. Isn't space tourism like a big deal on Wall Street right now where like- Oh, yeah. (laughs) Not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's some fundamental problems with that idea, it seems. So future moon explorers will be bombarded with two to three times more radiation than astronauts aboard the International Space Station, which is a health hazard that would require thick-walled shelters for protection. China's lander on the far side of the moon is providing the first full measurements of radiation exposure from the lunar surface, which is vital info for NASA and others aiming to send astronauts to the moon. So a Chinese-German team reported on the radiation data collected by the lander, which was named Chang'e 4 for the Chinese moon goddess, in the U.S. journal Science Advances. Thomas Berger, who's a physicist with the German Space Agency's Medicine Institute, says that this is an immense achievement in the sense that we now have a data set which we can use to benchmark our radiation. Astronauts would get 200 to 1,000 times more radiation on the moon than what we experience on Earth, or 5 to 10 times more than passengers on a transatlantic airline flight. Hmm. Hmm. So this was noted by Robert Wimmer Schweingruber of Christian Albrecht's University in Kiel, Germany, and he says that the difference is, however, that we're not on such a flight for as long as astronauts would be when they're exploring the moon. And cancer is the primary risk that we're talking about here. Sure. The radiation levels should be pretty much the same all over the moon, except for near the walls of deep craters. And the less you can see of the sky, the better, because that's the primary source of radiation. Mm -hmm. So if you're planning to live on the moon, try and lock down that prime deep crater real estate while you can is the main (laughs) takeaway here. I guess this means that Buzz Aldrin and all those guys, they were exposed. We just didn't know it at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good. Definitely. So Wimmer Schweingruber said that the radiation levels are close to what models had predicted in the past. So it doesn't describe when we knew about these, but this is at least something we've known recently. Mm -hmm. And the levels measured by Chang'e 4 actually agree nearly exactly with measurements by a detector on a NASA orbiter that's been circling the moon for more than a decade. So it's good to see a confirmation of what they think and their understanding of how radiation interacts with the moon and to see that it's as expected. Mm -hmm. So in a detailed outline released this week, NASA said that the first pair of astronauts to land on the moon under the new Artemis program would spend about a week on the lunar surface, more than twice as long as the Apollo crews did a half century ago. Mm -hmm. And expeditions would last one to two months once a base camp is established. Hmm. NASA is looking to put astronauts on the moon by the end of 2024, which is an accelerated pace ordered by the White House, Mm. uh, hashtag Space Force, (laughs) and on Mars sometime in the 2030s. Wow. The Space 
agency also said it will have radiation detectors and a safe shelter aboard all Orion crew capsules flying to the moon. But as for the actual landers, three separate corporate teams are developing their own craft with NASA oversight. For the first Artemis moon landing, at least, the astronauts will live in the ascent portion of their lander. And German researchers suggest that shelters built of moon dirt, which is readily available on the moon, should be built for stays of more than a few days. They should be 80 centimeters thick, at least, or about two and a half feet. However, any thicker, and the dirt will emit its own secondary radiation created when (laughs) galactic cosmic rays interact with the lunar soil. Yikes. Yeah. So it ends with Berger saying, so in this sense, I think the walls of European castles would be too thick. So (laughs) don't go building any castles on the moon. (laughs) And if you do, build it on the edge of the crater, at least. Exactly. Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right, well, I have a short one here right at the end. This is an explainer from National Geographic by Liz Langley. uh, And it basically is explaining the concept of mutualism, which Mm. is when two creatures interact in a way that's beneficial to both. It is technically Mm -hmm. a subset of symbiosis where two creatures interact, but they don't necessarily help or need each other, right? So like a parasite, for example, is technically symbiosis, but it's not at all helpful to the host. So it's not mutualism. The article distinguishes between facultative and obligate mutualism. Facultative is helpful but not necessary. So, for example, bees help pollinate a number of species, but most of those flowers can also pollinate on the wind if there are no bees. So that's Mm. facultative. But figs and wasps, which is sort of the main focus of this article, are an example of obligate mutualism. Without figs, there would be no wasps, and without wasps, there would be no figs. They oh, absolutely dang. require each other. I know. I, personally, I'm willing to lose the figs. If it means yeah. the wasps, I'm, I'm on board. I don't love figs that much. But the way this relationship has evolved between the two of them is crazy. So first, there are 750 species of fig, each of which has its own unique particular species of fig wasp. Like their little wasp soulmate is flying Wait, Are there. they tied to like certain species of figs as well? Like wasp A likes fig A, wasp B likes fig right. B? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I think it's geographical to a certain extent. Like I don't think that all 750 species and all 750 species of wasp are all swirling around together. I think it's more mm-hmm. geographical than that. But still, it is insane that that amount of differentiation can exist yeah. in both of them. Second, apparently figs aren't technically a fruit. They are a cluster of tiny flowers turned inward, wrapped by a hard skin so Mm. they look like a fruit. But you're not actually eating a fruit. You're eating flowers when you eat a fig. Well, I'll be darned. So (laughs) the life cycle begins when a female wasp burrows into a fig, lays her eggs inside it, and then (gasps) dies inside it. What? what? Yeah. (laughs) All wasp eggs are laid inside figs, apparently. Wait, so uh, the little crunchy part of the inside mm, of the fig could no, be a wasp stop. or wasp egg? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're, it, it's basically, by the end of the article, they make it pretty clear. If you've eaten a fig, chances are really good you've eaten at least a few dissolved wasps. Like, no. It's, yeah. Because they do dissolve. That's part. They, they sort of become part of the fruitiness. <sighs> yeah. They melt down. And so, but once she lays her eggs, the eggs hatch inside the fig. But the males are wingless. They never leave the fig. They just stay inside and fertilize their sisters, also gross, who then they fly out and burrow into other figs. But all the male wasps just stay inside and die and also 
dissolve inside the fig. So you're eating several wasps inside every fig with any wasps. Is okay, the <laughs> I thought I was going to be the grodiest one with my <laughs> toilet paper and autopsy articles today, but I cannot believe that your fig wasp has totally outdone me. Unreal. I'm, I'm an overachiever. I can't help it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so then obviously the new female wasps, they fly out. And as they go out and dig into a new fig somewhere else, they take the fig's pollen with them and fertilize the new fig tree as they go. So you have this constant cycle where the figs, unlike other flowers, they can't pollinate by themselves. They require the wasps. The wasps require the figs. Otherwise, they have nowhere to lay their babies. And literally, if either one went extinct, the other one absolutely would. They have some other really nice examples that are not quite as gross. (laughs) The phinopepla bird is the only species that can disperse the seeds of the desert mistletoe, which is a parasitic plant in the southwest U.S. and Mexico. The birds eat the seeds, and the way Judith Bronstein, an ecologist at the University of Arizona, describes it, she says, the seeds are very sticky, so when they've passed through the bird's gut, the bird has to wipe its rear end to get the seeds off. So apparently we are going thematic today. I hadn't remembered this bit of the article till just now. But the bird, of course, in wiping its bottom on other trees, happens to prefer to wipe on the exact tree that the mistletoe needs to live on. And it's it's I mean, how, it's mind blowing to me how this stuff evolves. Like, what are the odds that any of this ever came to pass? It's just it, yeah. Anyway, and there's more. They said the acacia trees of South America have evolved hollow thorns for ants to live in, and in return, the ants attack grazing herbivores that try to eat the tree. But fundamentally, Bronstein cautions against viewing these mutualistic creatures as, quote, friends. She said they're both in it for themselves. Uh, For example, (laughs) plants that provide nectar to bees can't provide too much nectar, or the bee will be full and not seek out a second plant where they're going to deposit the pollen. So Mm. there's an element of, like, you got to be enough nectar to be attractive, but you always want to leave the bee wanting more. I've heard this advice before. (laughs) (laughs) Keep your nectar supplies low, but not too low. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. We hope to see you again next week. Some of the articles we did not get to today include The Weird World of Kidnapping Insurance, The Daring Plan to Save the Arctic Ice with Glass, and Here's How You Can See Molecules on a Whole Nother Planet. And that is actually the headline, A Whole Apostrophe Nother Planet. So (laughs) have a look at some of those. If you'd like to support our podcast and keep us going, you can go to patreon.com slash damn interesting week. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.